0: Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the earth sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Earth News Interviews. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Dean.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: And our special guest, Professor Melissa Anderson. Hi, Sophia. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for being here. Did you guys? Uh, did you guys hear that thunderstorm last night? It was it was really really intense.
2: No, I'm turning into an old lady, so I go to bed pretty early these
1: days. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the lightning. I didn't. I didn't really hear the thunder, and my dog didn't really seem to notice it. So I don't know.
0: That's surprising. I heard that dogs are really like are really attentive when it comes to thunderstorms. Like they can tell like before it even happens. A lot of animals can.
1: If there's like a dog barking, even really quietly down the street, he hears it and lets me know. If there's like thunder, (laughs) he doesn't really care.
0: (laughs) That's probably a good thing.
2: It feels pretty oppressively humid over the last few days. It reminds me of being back in the South Pacific. It doesn't feel like I'm in Canada at all. It's crazy.
0: (laughs) I kind of like, like it just, you know, I was missing summer for so long. It's just been cold for, for so much of this, of the first part of this year that it was just nice, even, even though it's, it is really kind of like an oppressive humidity. It's still really nice, I think.
2: Yeah. We skipped over spring though. We went from winter <laughs> to summer within a week, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Such as Canada.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <You> can <never laughs> predict it. I think there's like a tornado warning also uh, near, I think this was like near Lake Huron or something. I don't know if it actually happened, but never seen a tornado.
2: Ah, I'm from the prairies. I saw quite a few.
0: Aren't you from Saskatchewan too? Yeah, I I am, but I've never never seen one. Never seen one. Crazy. Yeah.
1: (laughs) She's smart. She runs the opposite direction. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so Melissa, we wanted to ask you, what actually got you interested in earth science? Like, was there a moment... Uh, in a class or field course where you're like, yep, yeah, this is this is what it is. This is for me.
2: Uh, essentially two weeks into my first intro class. So I started off in engineering thinking I wanted to do aerospace engineering or mechanical engineering. And I didn't mind the classes. I liked all of the math and physics, but I also couldn't see myself being really excited to wake up and go to the office every day. So I started taking a couple of other courses and I was just looking through the course calendar and the the description was something about earthquakes and volcanoes. I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds cool. And um, this was at a very small university called Brandon University in Manitoba. And I joined this intro to earth science course and the the professor, Simon Patterson, um, was just an absolutely phenomenal lecturer and I think most of us walked out of the class all switching our majors into geology because it was just, you could you could feel his passion for the subject. And I just, I wanted that too. So it was, I was pretty lucky, pretty early on in taking a geology course, I discovered that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life.
1: Did you have like an interest in volcanoes or earthquakes, like on the side?
2: Oh, yeah. I I didn't even realize that I loved geology before I knew what to call it. So I was like a a bit of a nerd in school. And I did like science fair stuff in like grade seven and eight on earthquakes and building earthquake resistant structures and stuff like that. (laughs) Um, So I, I was generally really interested. And some of my other more like random interests, like I really love maps. And I didn't really realize that that had a place in my life. Or even just funny things like coloring. I really like coloring. And it's surprising how much coloring you do in geology.
1: Did you watch many uh, disaster movies at all?
2: Yeah. uh, Dante's Peak was a big one for me. A classic volcano movie. And um, God, I was 10 when that came out. And I remember having an argument with my younger sister about which one of us would become the volcanologist. And then I kind of forgot about it. And then uh, it turns out I came the closest at least. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's. It. do you bring some of the same methodology that you learned in your introductory course to geology into the courses you teach right now?
2: Well, I I go towards teaching from a perspective of wanting students to learn because they're interested rather than learning to get a grade. So I think that with that perspective, Intro courses are really interesting because there's just so much cool stuff, new stuff to learn and mm-hmm. interesting discussions to have. So it's basically informed my entire philosophy. Let's just get a good discussion going and let's talk about some interesting processes and my main goal is to just get students to see the world a little bit differently. So I think that's that's about as far as I go. <laughs> <laughs>
1: does does that does that kind of play into like how you decide what you want to research, like what what's driving your interest at the moment, or is it? Do you like see a need and decide, hey, I really think it would be really cool if we focused more of my research on that.
2: So ultimately, it comes down to being opportunistic, and um, I have a love of exploration and a love of adventure and that fundamentally drives a lot of what I do. So when it came to deciding what kind of discipline within geology, I mean, geology is huge. It's like medicine. You can study all different kinds of medicine. Well, you can study all different kinds of geology. And I just loved all of it. I'm like, oh, don't make me choose. (laughs) So in the end, I ended up going towards economic geology, which is basically understanding the processes that concentrate metals in Earth's crust because it's applied geology. You can take things that you learn in igneous petrology and volcanology and structures and apply it towards different problems. Um, And what um, pushed me towards my specific research area looking at ore deposits on the seafloor is because it's a vast area that's just been Totally unexplored. So it's a chance to see new things and find things that no one has ever seen before and to really make advances in our fundamental understanding of different processes. Um, So when I was picking a PhD in the first place, um, I was offered the chance to go on a research cruise in the Western Pacific. And I thought, well, that sounds like a pretty cool life experience. And I just went with it. So just loving the science and loving the opportuni- opportunities and sense of adventure that come with it, I think is what really led me to where I am now.
1: I've definitely noticed a uh, sense of uh, adventure uh, taking the, the earth courses and the field courses that I that I have taken. But I took ore deposits class just this last year with Dan Gregory, and I learned a lot of things about economic geology. because I used to have this this line in my head, this demarcation line about minerals existing here, but not over there. And I realized that this line really isn't real, but these resources exist everywhere on Earth. And the continuously moving line that does exist is where do they exist at high enough concentrations to be profitably extracted? And and I guess another line that's that we're becoming more conscious of is. Where do they exist in high enough concentrations that they can be extracted in an environmentally conscious way? So this discipline of economic geology is especially interdisciplinary, even compared to other already interdisciplinary earth science fields because you have to be in touch with commodities markets and fiscal cycles and social sciences political sciences and of course the environmental sciences like ecology there's just so much to do with it
2: yeah and particularly i guess we'll talk a bit more about this later but the the specific sites that i study which are active hot springs on the seafloor are really at an intersection of biology and oceanography and geology too so i really like that interdisciplinary nature within um, just my small field of research. Um, The other thing that really got me interested in economic geology is just getting kind of this perspective of how important different minerals and metals are in our everyday life. So I think there's a pretty big disconnect for most people understanding um, where the things that they use come from. Um, and it's pretty easy to say, well, mining's bad for the environment. We should stop it. But it's really our cities, our electronics, our medical systems, transportation, everything is built on mining. So, having a really clear understanding of economic geology, even if you don't become an economic geologist, is really important to understand some of the bigger issues that we're facing regarding um, sustainability and climate change. Right. So you're saying it's
0: important to see like, the bigger picture in this.
2: Yeah. You have to know how dependent we are on mining and exploration um, if you want to make informed decisions
0: about it.
1: Right. Well, really good start to our topic. Our article summary for this week is going to be brought to us by Sophia.
0: Thanks, Dean. Uh, so, yeah, the main article that we'll be pulling from is from the Metals and Society book, which is a part of the Springer Mineralogy book series. And this article basically talks about the future of economic geology, which is, as we already mentioned, is a very like holistic field. Um, and just to recap, deals with mineral resources that are in the Earth's crust. And often, economic geologists conduct research that's really important for the natural resource industry, in particular, mining. So as Earth scientists, in particular geologists, I mean, we're, we're known to have a lot of jargon, including this term mineral resources. But Melissa, I wanted to ask what the term mineral resources actually means and what's the difference between mineral resources and mineral reserves?
2: So these are words that have very specific definitions. It's not something that you can really throw around very easily. So. A mineral resource is basically um, a defined body of mineral material that is potentially valuable, um, where there's kind of a reasonable chance that we can extract it and make money by doing it. Mineral reserves are a little bit different. They're valuable and economically and technically feasible to extract. So a reserve is what we can take out. A resource is maybe in the future, we'll also be able to mine it.
0: Okay, I see. So the line is kind of drawn between an an economical and a non-economical deposit.
2: Yeah, and those are also further subdivided based on how confident we are. So when it comes to defining how much metal is in the ground, it takes quite a lot of work. Well, there's a lot of work just to find it in the first place. But if we find an area where there's higher concentrations of metals, we have to start doing a lot of Um, sampling, we drill holes into the ground, and then we have to figure out how much material is between those holes. And um, we have different levels of confidence about um, how sure we are what the metal content is there. So we have kind of three um, subdivisions. There's inferred, indicated, and measured. So inferred is the least confident and measured would be the most confident. Um, and when it comes to using these terms, there's very specific guidelines to how we can um, define them. And a lot of this comes back to the BREX scandal. Do you, are you familiar with um, BRIEX and what happened in Canada's history?
1: Yeah, yeah, that one that one's where they had a little bit of fraud or something like that with investors because they improperly told the investors what was there or what wasn't there.
2: Yeah, it was a big gold mining scandal. Um so there was a deposit in Indonesia. It was a potentially hugely enormous gold deposit that was being developed by uh group of companies in Canada. And what happened was when they drilled out of the ground, they weren't actually finding any metal, they were adding gold to the samples. It was called salting the samples. And then those samples (laughs) were then sent off to get um, analyzed for geochemistry. And everyone was like, wow, this is the largest gold discovery ever. And they raised a huge amount of money on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Um, But then more investigations came and And it was found that the entire thing was a huge fraud and all of these investors were entirely defrauded um, out of all of their money. And people realized, well, this is maybe a little bit too easy for people to defraud. So we're gonna come up with a professional registration system and some really specific guidelines on reporting. And that's where when we are doing exploration and we're trying to let investors know this is the size of our deposit, we actually have very stringent guidelines of how this is reported now so that this scandal can't happen again. So one event really changed how we um, do reporting, how we have press releases and actually how we become professionally registered as geologists and we take oaths about um, ethics now um, (laughs) so that this doesn't happen again.
1: If I recall, there was quite a dramatic ending with the, the geologist that was responsible for that. He quote unquote fell from a helicopter hundreds of feet in the air.
2: Yeah, uh, there's a movie on it called Gold starring Matthew McConaughey. And um, the movie is crazy, but just know that that was real, really crazy in the first place.
0: So, I mean, I think this all kind of goes to show how reporting and I guess the way that mining and exploration has been done has been changing over the years. But I mean, if we go back to the first mining uh, was done for hematite to make the red pigment ochre, which was about 40,000 years ago. But I mean, today with technological advancements, the methods now are so sophisticated that we can extract precious metals like gold from more than three kilometers below the surface. And and I think Melissa, what's what's the deepest man-made borehole that we that we've ever created?
2: Yeah, that was more just to see if we could. Um, it's the Kola Deep Borehole, which is um, twelve kilometers, twelve point something kilometers deep, which doesn't even get halfway through uh, continental crust. So when we're talking about exploration, we're really talking about the very surface of earth, like the very top of earth's crust. And previously the way we would find deposits is by just walking around and looking at the rocks and saying, Hey, there's some metal here, or there's some cool colors in the rock that indicate there's some metal beneath it. And that that was the primary way that we did what we call prospecting. Um, Now, The things that are at surface and kind of outcropping, as we say, um, have been found. So we have to look deeper and deeper. And it's more and more challenging, technically. And it's also more and more expensive. Um, So it is becoming a lot harder to do exploration
0: in the first place. Yeah, so uh, that's interesting you said. So we just did that just for fun, just to see how deep we can go.
2: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we want to understand what's below our crust. We The only samples we have of mantle material is things that come up in kimberlites, for instance, or in really strange um, low-angle detachment faults, we call them. Just, just really strange environments where we actually get samples of mantle material, and usually it's all completely altered. So it would be fantastic to get a drill hole through the crust to actually sample the mantle but as you get deeper things get hotter and so it's very challenging to do
0: so yeah like as as we talked about the the last hundred years or so have seen a really big boom in both small and large mining operations but in the last several decades finding economical deposits is getting much harder but i mean there's a there's a light at the end of the tunnel for all of this with our technological advancements, the deposits, once termed uneconomical, might have their status reviewed. And this is just because with a certain economical grade that we have right now, say, for example, like five grams of uh, gold per ton, now because we can extract this gold from ore more efficiently, we may be able to term deposits that are, say, for example, four grams per ton as economical.
2: Yeah, technology is one side of it, but also market conditions are another side of it. So what you can extract and make a profit will change on the value. So if, for instance, copper is very cheap, then you can only mine areas that are really high grade. Um, If copper becomes more expensive, then all of a sudden you can make more money mining the lower grade or lower concentration areas. But keep in mind, like when you're mining lower concentration areas, that means that you have to process a lot more rock to get the metal out of it, um, which takes a lot more energy, a huge amount of energy and also it's generally a much larger area. So the lower grades that you mine, the larger the environmental impacts. So there's always a lot of trade-off
0: with all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is kind of the part where it gets even more interesting. Even areas on Earth that were once completely like off-limits for mining companies like the seafloor and, and space are now coming into the mainstream and not just, you know, a subject for a sci-fi novel or something. And I mean, we're also seeing this great energy revolution that's partially in response to fossil fuel emission concerns and global warming, but also because there's potential that solar and wind power will at one point be cheaper than using fossil fuels to power our homes. And uh, to support this growing industry of, you know, lithium batteries, photovoltaic cells, semiconductors for robots, there's increasing demand for elements like lithium, chromite, and rare earth elements. So I was wondering, Melissa, if you could tell us what are rare earth elements exactly? Where do we find them and and how are they actually used in industry?
2: So rare earth elements, if you were to look at a periodic table, they are the elements at the bottom that have all of these really strange names. Um, There's the lanthanides and there's things like lanthium, cerium, neodymium, samarium, europium. They're, they're very like strangely <laughs> named elements. And they're called rare elements, not because they're rare in the overall abundance in Earth's crust, but there's very specific kind of geological scenarios that actually concentrate these elements in Earth's crust. So it's it's very difficult to concentrate them. So there's a lot of bizarre geological conditions that are forming these, but they're really becoming more and more important in our high-tech applications. So for instance, we talk a lot about um, smartphones, for instance, Um, there's a lot of rare earth compounds that are used in small quantities to produce the colors in the screens. Um, For other things like electric cars, there's a lot of rare earth elements that are used in the magnets and the motors. So we're using more and more of them, but there's very few conditions that they're actually forming. So I can try to explain this in simple terms, but basically when you have some sort of magma, um, there are certain elements that easily form different crystals, different minerals. But there are some elements that we call incompatible. So they either are too large or they have too high of a charge to really fit easily into normal rock forming minerals so as a a melt is evolving and crystallizing these really strange elements are left over in kind of the residual late stage melt so if you have a really long process of um, evolving your melt then you can actually get these very strange melts with these higher concentrations of these incompatible elements, primarily the rare earth elements, but also other interesting high-tech elements like tantalum and niobium. And then these form in smaller deposits called pegmatites. There are some other different kinds of rare earth deposits as well, all associated with these really weird magmatic conditions. The next issue when it comes to rare earths is that most of the production is done in China. So we recognize that rare earths are really critical for having a high-tech society. It's also really critical for our economy to secure our own source of these metals. But when supply is controlled for any kind of um, commodity by just one country, then you have a lot of other challenges in getting your own supply. So we do have a couple of rare earth deposits in Canada that aren't being mined, that could be mined. Um, But when one country can control, you know, well, we're just going to limit how much exporting there is or we're going to drop the price of it, then it's really hard for us to get our own supply online. Um, So it leads to a lot of these kind of international conflicts and relationships. The other thing is that every deposit of rare earths is totally unique. So you get different rare earths in different deposits and some are um, more interesting and more valuable than others. And just to get all of these different elements out of the minerals, it's a process called metallurgy. And you basically have to develop an approach for every single different deposit. So it's not as simple as we're gonna take gold out of the ground. There's a lot of other economic and technical considerations, and yet they're absolutely critical for going forward for high-tech applications.
0: So I think it's fair to say that economic geology has an important role in the next several decades.
2: Yeah, I mean, in in everything, basically. So our, our dependence on metal is not going to decrease. Even looking at recycling, for instance, most of the periodic table most of the metals we can't recycle at all um, a lot of the rare earths there's less than one percent recycling of that even things where there's a ton of recycling look at the steel industry so steel is the most widely used thing for infrastructure the skeletons of buildings cars everything uses steel steel is an alloy of um, iron and carbon and So steel, we have recycling rates of something like 86%. Um, It's the most recycled metal, but considering how much of it we actually use (laughs) on a daily basis, that even that recycling rate still means that we have to open a lot of mines. So when it comes to steel, that also means we're opening a lot of coal mines. So it's a carbon alloy, and we need really high-grade metallurgical coal, in order to produce steel. So for every ton of steel produced, we're emitting an average of like 1.8 tons of CO2. So like if we if we want to build wind turbines, for instance, those are made out of steel. We need Mm -hmm. to have coal mines to build wind turbines. So absolutely everything that we come into contact with and particularly things that we need to develop like electric vehicles or wind turbines or photovoltaic sales to go to a low carbon economy all requires mining. So one of the things that really interests me about economic geology is just this contradictions and some of the debates involved with how do we mine and explore better? How do we do it in a more environmentally friendly way in the first place? Because it's not going to (laughs) stop.
1: Yeah. Touching back on the recycling issue, there are a lot of places in the world that just don't recycle. When I visit my dad's place, he just has one garbage bin. It's just garbage. And so he used to live back maybe a mile down the street from this giant dump. And I can't help but think about how many batteries and metals, rare earth elements, are actually in that deposit. And I know that we are increasingly recycling, but I wonder how long it'll be before we start going into our dump sites before that is like economically viable to go into those.
2: Yeah, Um I mean, recycling, even when we think we're doing it well, so if we take all of our electronics to a recycler and drop it off, a lot of the time it doesn't actually get recycled. A lot of the time it's just going to get shipped off to Asia and put in a landfill. So even when we think we're doing a good job, we're not. And even if we could recycle better, it still takes a lot of energy and a lot of money to do it. So, I, I mean, our primary goal is a circular economy where we don't have to mine anything, but we're a really... Um, far away away from that. And it's, it's seeing some contradictions, like, we don't want to open minds, people care about the environment, and yet buy a new smartphone every year. I mean, there, there's just such a big disconnect between our actions and a true understanding of the implications of our choices.
0: So I kind of wanted to go back and ask, I mean, since we have this increasing demand for for metals, and, and we need to, keep feeding that if we want to go to a zero carbon economy or low carbon economy, what I'm seeing is that the number of deposits being found is staying relatively constant, even if demand is rising. So is this an indicator that those deposits are really running out? Or are we just looking in the wrong places? It's
2: an indicator of many things. Um, It's primarily an indicator of global economy. Um, So when there's a major market crash then it's harder to bring things online Um, right now particularly it's hard to raise money to do any kind of exploration in the first place it's considered very risky and so we're not really bringing new projects online so the current rate of exploration and discovery has far more to do with global economics than with any kind of geological reality. Interesting. When it comes to geology, we do know that it is getting harder. We have to develop new techniques and new new exploration technologies and approaches in order to find deposits under cover. Um, so deeper under the surface. It's, it's not a trivial thing to locate some concentration of metal 300 meters below the surface. So there there also is an element of developing technologies and developing a really good understanding of the geology of the area because again it all comes down to different kinds of geological processes that are concentrating these metals. So so being really good geologists is far more important. But there's a lot of challenges. So right now there's this Big gap in expertise. There are people who have left the industry because it crashed and they couldn't find work. And there's the industry is coming back online and there's a big gap in knowledge that hasn't been passed out. And so we also have kind of this training challenge that we're facing. But ultimately, as we see something, some projections of, um, well, this is how much copper we have left. Um, in our global supply, that number is always going to increase because we're going to be continuing to do exploration and continuing to turn reserves into resources and continuing to find new deposits. So it's it's not a simple calculation like we know we have this much copper and we're going to use it all because we're always
1: adding. Right. right. Speaking of new explorations and new horizons, it wasn't actually that long ago that SpaceX successfully launched their Dragon capsule carrying two astronauts to the International Space Station and they're they're getting really good at that. It's really it's much cheaper now now that they we have reusable rockets. What do you what do you think about the prospect I know this isn't your uh, exact field of expertise or anything, but what do you think about our prospects of space mining, asteroid mining, that kind of stuff?
2: Yeah, I mean, when we think about mining and the impacts on the environment, what better alternative is there than to just grab a hunk of space debris and mine that instead, (laughs) and not have to cut down a forest or make a big open pit. Um, So from an environmental perspective, asteroid mining or even mining on the moon is just a fantastic alternative. There's more technological challenges involved with that than with finding new deposits just on the surface of the earth. So whether or not that can be done in a way that can actually make people money, <laughs> where they don't spend so much money trying to get the asteroid or whatever, then they'll ever recover from it. I think that that is such an enormous hurdle that it's probably not in the near future, maybe not in my lifetime. I think that it's the kind of thing where people will get excited about something and then realize the reality of trying to actually get the capital in the first place to test it.
1: You need you need some kind of rogue billionaires who is willing to do it,
2: (laughs) right? Or an association of them. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But again, if we think about like human expansion into the solar system, if we want a colony on the moon or on Mars, we can't bring everything. With us. I mean, it's just getting stuff out of the gravity well of Earth is very, very expensive. So, if we can do what they call in situ resource utilization and actually develop the resources on the moon or on Mars, then that would be saving money and advancing kind of our reach into
0: space. So, that would be really cool too. So, I actually have the same exact question, Jean, but this time, talk about the seafloor and what are the prospects of that?
1: That is your expertise.
0: Yes, that is my expertise. So there are a
2: couple of different kinds of resources that could be mined on the seafloor. Some, when we're talking about continental shelves, are already being mined on the seafloor. So for example, off the west coast of Africa, they do actually mine the shallow seafloor for diamonds. I didn't know that. Yeah, (laughs) the deep sea has not been mined. And there's been a lot of kind of talk about this over the last few decades since they first discovered different kinds of deposits on the seafloor. So there are kind of three main deposit types that have economic potential on the seafloor. The first is cobalt-rich ferromanganese crusts. So these are kind of these Black crusts that are millimeters to centimeters thick that form on submarine seamounts. Um, and they do have a ton of cobalt in them. And cobalt is one of these what we call critical metals. They're something that are absolutely necessary for batteries, which, again, going to more carbon free technologies, we need cobalt. But these ferromanganese crusts could be a substantial resource, but at the same time, scraping them off the rocks on very rugged terrain is going to be very challenging. The next kind of resource are, um, again, cobalt-rich manganese nodules. Um, These form on um, what we call abyssal plains, so kind of the flat sedimented part of the ocean in very deep ocean basins. Um, And these contain also a substantial amount of cobalt, but also a lot of copper. They're called nodules because they look like softballs or baseballs, and they form exactly one deep on (laughs) the seafloor. And there's these vast fields where it's just these balls on the seafloor. So the idea there is that you can just scoop them up and them to shore and mine them so those form mainly in an area called the clarion clipperton zone in the north pacific and there is a lot of exploration for them although this is in international waters and there currently isn't legislation in place for actually mining these so we're we're not in a a point of mining the seafloor yet but there's also a lot of unknowns so first is technology i mean again these are one deep so you basically need some sort of vacuum system to go and suck them up over a huge area presuming that the value of these deposits makes the investment in developing the technology worthwhile there's also a lot of unknowns in terms of environmental impacts so the it would affect a huge area of benthic habitat and there just hasn't been a lot of baseline studies we don't really know what's there or how mining would impact it. Or if we mine the seafloor, it would kick up a lot of sediment and how that would affect things. So the, the biggest problem with mining these nodules is environmental concerns. And this is an area where I think there will be mining in the near future, but we do have the opportunity to do it right. I mean, mining has a really bad reputation for a reason when it comes to the environment. It has (laughs) not been led by science. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is an opportunity to actually involve scientists and answer these questions and engage in debates about whether or not it's worth it. So one of the reasons why, it seems preferable to mine these cobalt-rich nodules from the sea floor rather than on land is, besides economic considerations, ethical considerations. So a lot of the cobalt that we mine, more than half of it is from the Congo, where they have tens of thousands of children in their mines mm-hmm. <laughs> actually extracting the cobalt. And it's really not safe. And it's very unethical and we do not do a good job um, tracking our supply chains. So there was some controversy in recent years about all the batteries and Apple iPhones um, using cobalt from the Congo and there's just no transparency in our supply chains. So is it better to mine on the seafloor where we don't need to cut down a forest and we don't employ like child labor? So there, these are the philosophical mm-hmm. debates that as a society we need to be having right now. It's similar, like if we wanted to open a mine in Canada, there's this attitude that not in my backyard, we, we don't want a mine in Canada, we want to preserve our environment. Mm-hmm. But we have much better health and safety and environmental regulations than most of the world. So if we want that's true better mining practices, it actually would be better to open the mines in Canada rather than to outsource it to other countries. I mean, we have this attitude of, like, local food and local produce. Um, I think mining local should be the same kind of attitude. At least we can monitor it and regulate it ourselves. The third kind of resource on the seafloor is where uh, my field of research lies. Now, these are called hydrothermal vents. They're basically hot springs on the sea floor associated with submarine volcanoes. So actually 80% of all volcanism on earth is under the water. And when you have some sort of hot magma that comes into the ocean crust, it'll drive the circulation of seawater through the ocean crust, that seawater will heat up and it'll leach the background concentrations of metals. And then as this hot metal rich water reaches the seafloor, interacts with the cold seawater and dumps out all these metals. And it forms these really brilliant looking, we call them chimneys because they are little towery spires on the seafloor. And these contain a lot of copper and lead and zinc. Um, Also lots of um, precious metals can be found in some deposits like silver and gold um, and some other important um, critical metals like cadmium. And indium and gallium and germanium. So there has been some um, emphasis on mining these deposits, but here the environmental concerns are much, much higher. So the discovery of the first hydrothermal vents on the seafloor was a huge discovery for biology because we also discovered entire ecosystems that are based on chemosynthesis where microbes get their energy from the rocks and entire ecosystems are built around these microbes and so they're very very unique ecosystems where there's no energy input from the sun and it's absolutely spectacular. You you dive to one of these sites with a remotely operated vehicle, and just the biodiversity and the biomass—it's like the rainforest. And we're discovering new species all the time. Um, so yes, we have a huge amount of metal on the seafloor that we could go and scoop up potentially, but <laughs> the environmental risk is just um, not worth it. Um, so yeah, exactly. Um, right now. There's a lot of fear that these sites will be mined, but the amount of environmental risk to me suggests that they'll probably never be mined. Now, there is the potential of finding these sites where they're no longer active, um, where all of the hot water venting has ceased, the system has died out, and the animals have moved away. Um, But we're not able to find those sites (laughs) effectively yet. So the way that we find these on the seafloor is that all of this hot water that's coming out is enriched in a lot of different chemicals. And we can use surveys of the water column to find chemical and physical changes produced by these, what we call hydrothermal plumes of hot water, um, and then locate the source. Sounds mysterious. Yeah, it's really cool, actually. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, so our entire uh, kind of scientific exploration, at least, of these systems is based on finding active sites. And a big part of my research is understanding the fundamental geological controls on where these sites are happening so we can try to find the inactive vent sites, which presumably have lower environmental risk. And we also don't know anything about these inactive vent sites what kind of microbial communities are living there how easily they're preserved on the seafloor things like that so i'm not saying this will be a good mining alternative um but again (laughs) uh, a lot of misinformation is out there on both sides so there's a lot Mm -hmm. of fear from um, the environmental side saying, oh, we we have to stop mining of these things. And I don't think mining is going to happen of these things. And then on the other hand, there's the uh, side, oh, look at this great resource that we can go mine and it's going to make us so much money. Yeah.
1: Um, Well, I was going to say, I uh, did some outreach last year for the earth science department for incoming first years. And the most common kind of hesitancy that I got are these pushbacks against mining and the environment and the social things and I and I couldn't help but notice that a lot of the hesitancy is more toward the social side of things than the actual mining itself because a lot of people would say like finding more resources in our current economic paradigm doesn't mean the developing countries will get more hospitals or or schools or more efficient power grids it probably more commonly means that people in developed countries will get a third TV or a second car or something like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, when we talk about sustainability, there's three pillars of it. The first is environmental sustainability, and then there's social sustainability and economic sustainability. And a lot of that is focused on bringing developing countries up to developed nation standards, Um, So part of that, when we talk about developing resources on the seafloor in international waters, this is all governed by the UN Seabed Authority. And part of the wording for exploration and future extraction is about how this will be kind of shared benefit for all of mankind and how the profits will be distributed primarily to developing nations that do not have their own kind of coastal exclusive economic zones, landlocked nations. So I think that it's important that when we move forward to developing these kinds of new resources, that there's consideration for the distribution of the wealth that it generates, because it does generate wealth, right? Mm -hmm. But again, it comes down to demand. Most of the demand for these materials comes from people wanting to buy a third car or a new cell phone or another TV. So we, we don't necessarily need those things, but it's the demand that's driving the exploration and production, not the other way around. So if we want to mine less, we need a drastic overhaul of our lifestyles. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be hard even just considering population growth. And again, like when, when we think about also how to help, The lives, the economies of other people, making sure that they have access to education and healthcare and legal systems and ending hunger and ending poverty and all of these really important goals of the UN sustainability development goals. A lot of that is based on this kind of traditional model of economic growth, which is in its essence at odds with the idea of environmental sustainability. So there's a lot of contradictions associated with how we view our societies going forward. For me, when I study these ore deposits on the seafloor, I'm way more interested in understanding the processes involved, not so that we can mine the seafloor, but so that we can better understand deposits that are on land that originally formed on the seafloor, so that we can be more efficient
0: and responsible when we explore and develop those deposits. So I think perhaps uh, what we could say is from even this 40 minutes of discussion, I feel like we ask questions, but we created more new questions than we had before. So I think that's just the nature of this discussion, the nature of science, the nature of such an interdisciplinary field.
2: Well, there there are no answers, and it's a thing that we need to discuss as a society and come to some sort of understanding and an agreement as a society. But it's really hard to do with the current lack of education about resources and the impact of our consumer choices on these resources if we want to you know continue towards a low carbon economy we're going to have to open more mines and people need to really understand this resource cycle <laughs> in order to state that all right so we know that there's going to be trade offs so how do we manage that and how do we do it in a better way i mean that just means that we're, we're going to have to have you back <laughs> for another episode <laughs> we just need more students taking geology courses <laughs>
0: That's also a really good point. Well, Melissa, we're, we're going to take a break from asking you all these hardball questions. We want to ask you, I, I guess, a more, a more light, a more fun question. Okay. So I'm going to ask you, if you weren't an Earth scientist, who would you be?
2: Mm, that changes regularly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so besides... Earth science, I love all sciences. So I really have a love for physics and astronomy. So I would probably have ended up in one of those fields if I hadn't chosen geology. But right now, if I had to choose, I would probably move to some field where I have more creativity. So a lot of my hobbies are around arts and being creative like photography or i'm learning how to knit and things like that because i i I need an outlet for my artistic expression (laughs) so if i had to it also might be the quarantine maybe maybe this is more of a plan for retirement
1: (laughs) (laughs) if you could solve one scientific mystery that interests you whether it's earth sciences or or knitting (laughs) uh, what would it be
2: um is there life elsewhere in the universe
1: Ooh, I like that. That's one. a good one.
0: That's a good one. Uh, on a scale of one to ten, how how convinced are you that there is life? Nine point five in the universe.
2: Nine point <laughs> five. Okay. Yeah. I mean, me, me too. There's there's all of the ingredients. Like Earth is not unique in the ingredients that it has. Um, although there were some pretty substantial things required to evolve to where we are now but the primordial soup of the universe has these ingredients for forming life in it. So we can't be the only ones.
1: Very convincing. I'm also very convinced of that. I <laughs> I hope we find something before I die. That's, that's one of my primary oh, hopes.
2: I want to um, meet an alien. Maybe it'll be microbial.
1: <laughs> Intelligent <laughs> life, maybe not. That would be enough for me, honestly.
0: I'm totally OK with that. Just something that maybe not carbon-based life. Even that would be impressive. I think it would be hard
2: to identify is this life in situ is this some bacteria we brought with us how convinced are we are that this is actually fossil of a microbe, for instance, I think it's a huge challenge.
1: Yeah. Well, let's uh, wrap it up. Uh, Sophia, do you want to give us today's quote?
0: absolutely dean so our quote today comes from edward o wilson who is an american biologist and also as dean told me earlier an ant connoisseur <laughs> is that right
1: yeah he was he's pretty much the world authority on ants he's made his career on that. So. naturalist social commentator.
0: very cool well that's why we have this quote by him the great challenge of the 21st century is to raise people everywhere to a decent standard of living while preserving as much of the rest of life as possible
1: very true that's
0: food for thought ah nice
2: can i give you a quote as well absolutely yeah the common quote is if it can't be grown it must be mined and even when we grow something we need mining to sustain it (laughs)
1: double quote, double quote double quote i like that all right well thank you again melissa that was great
0: yeah we learned a lot thanks so much thank you for having me thank you guys We want to say thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you tune in next week for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university.